Welcome to the FOI Equip podcast, your free resource for learning and engaging with the scriptures from a Jewish perspective. Hi, everybody. I'm Chris Katolka. You know, the scriptures tell the story of God's chosen people and his plan to bring salvation to the whole world through Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Come see why it matters that God would choose an ancient people to bring a timeless hope to a lost and broken world. Now, listen, I want to encourage you to go to foiequip.org to sign up to be on our mailing list. You're going to receive vital information on how you can join our free live online FOI Equip classes. Now get ready. Join our expert staff on the FOI Equip podcast as we teach the scriptures, unravel the colorful world of Jewish culture and customs, reveal God's prophetic plan, and so much more. Now enjoy this teaching from FOI Equip. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for being a part of our FOI Equip guest lecture series. And, uh, you know, uh, this month marks 56 years since the start and finish of the Six-Day War in Israel. And that's why we thought it would be very fitting to have our guest lecturer, Dr. Mordecai Kadar, join us. Dr. Kadar is an Israeli scholar of Arab culture and a lecturer at Bar-Ilan University and the vice president of Newsreel, um, and I'm hoping that he gets an opportunity to talk about that. But uh, Dr. Qatar, great to see you. It is great to be here, Chris. Thank you so much for having me here. Oh, it's a joy to have you. I know that you have a long history with Friends of Israel as well. Uh, you've been to our headquarters. You've spoken to our people. Uh, before we get started, though, I thought maybe people should hear how you as an Israeli gotten, have became a scholar of Arab culture uh, uh, and and history, and even an Arabic speaker yourself, maybe you could uh, share about that. Well, originally, I'm not an Arabic speaker. My mother tongue was Yiddish. My, both my parents came in the 30s from Poland to, to the land of Israel. Um, it was, what, years before the state was declared. Uh, they came when this country was under the British uh, mandate. And uh, they came from Poland and they spoke Yiddish at home. But however, uh, here in Israel, uh, we, we, the people who were born already in Israel, we usually do not speak the languages which our parents uh, brought from exile. Uh, neither Yiddish from Europe, nor Arabic from Arabic-speaking countries, or Ladino, which is like Latin or Spanish. Uh, which came uh, with the Jews who lived in Spanish-speaking countries. Uh, because part of being an Israeli means to adopt the Hebrew as your language and abandon uh, the language of the Galut, of exile. And mm. this some kind of an, some kind of an ideology. Uh, so uh, we became Israelis, and uh, as a result, uh, we actually are a, a new nation, or renewed nation, uh, because now we, we are not only, we got out of exile, we got exile out of us. And we don't consider our, ourselves to be anymore like uh, American Jew or Moroccan Jew or Iraqi or Russian. We are Israelis, period. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is actually the, uh, the change. And as a result, we changed also our behavior. Instead of being a Jew who is running away from place to place in order to survive, now we fight. We give a fight. If needed, we give a fight, which 
Jews for 2,000 years of exile never fought. They always ran away from, you know, people who persecuted them everywhere in the Arab world, in Europe, in many other places. <laughs> Look, in Brazil, uh, there was an inquisition until 170 years ago. Inquisition in Brazil. Hmm. Unbelievable. But uh, this is what we experienced through those 19 centuries of exile. Okay, now we are giving fight when needed. And our neighbors apparently do not like it. Uh, I was born in 1952, means I am uh, in my 71st year. And I, I grew up in Tel Aviv and I went to high school um, in, in Tel Aviv and there there was a teacher of Arabic, a, a, a Jewish guy who originally came from Germany, but he knew Arabic very well, literary Arabic, not any dialect, but the literary, what, what we call today modern standard Arabic, which is used in the media, in the law system, in politics, uh, and this is not the colloquial Arabics in plural. This is one modern standard Arabic. And that's what the, the language which we learned. And this is actually the language which I master. Uh, after four years of high school uh, with Arabic, we have already read parts of the Quran, parts of the Hadith, means the oral tradition. Um, ancient literature means classical literature, modern literature. Um, editorials uh, in uh, modern newspapers. And uh, when we finished the high school, we could read uh, an Arabic newspaper without the dictionary. Wow. Uh, that, uh, well, we mastered Arabic. Uh, so the Israeli IDF took us en bloc, uh, 13 kids, to the intelligence. And I spent uh, 25 years, I served 25, 25 years in the Israeli intelligence in the 8200 unit. And uh, there I, I got, got my, my language even better. And in the 90s, I started my uh, PhD. I, I learned from BA in the early 80s. And in the 90s, I worked on my PhD. And when I was released from the army in the rank of uh, Brigadier General, in 1995, I started to write my thesis about the Syrian uh, press, about the language, or the, the linguistics of the Syrian uh, um, regime. Um, and uh, we, since then, since the 1995, I'm teaching. I was teaching at Barilan. I retired a year ago, but I continue to instruct uh, some students to MA and uh, PhD. And uh, in addition, I'm a speaker, frequent speaker in Arabic media, since I speak Arabic fluently. So I represent Israel in the, the most difficult arenas like Al Jazeera and the BBC in Arabic and, and many others. Uh, in addition to a commentary on Arab and Islamic issues, in the Israeli media, in papers, in TV stations, and all kinds of uh, media outlets. So I am very busy. And once in a while, I go to the States uh, to give lectures as I gave in the front of Israel high court, uh, headquarters uh, in South uh, New Jersey, overlooking uh, Philadelphia. 
I remembered it until this very day. You know, we were supposed to have you come and uh, join us in person just prior to the pandemic, yeah, well, but uh, the pandemic prevented that from happening. But I'm thankful for this Zoom opportunity. So let's get to the Six-Day War, uh, Dr. Kadar. Can you share about the background of the Six-Day War? What was going on in the Arab world and what was going on in Israel that was ultimately bringing uh, this uh, clash between multiple Arab nations and Israel in 1967? Well, first of all, I was in 1967. I was 15 years old. Means a guy who understands very well what goes around. Um, we already was in the high school, and the teacher, the Arabic teacher, Dovi Iron, may he rest in peace, um, explained to us everything so we knew exactly what we are facing. Israel was facing an exist existential uh, threat. Don't forget that those days, Israel was very thin, was very small. It's before we liberated Judea and Samaria and occupied other parts of like Sinai Desert and the Golan. And Israel was so narrow, was so narrow that in the narrowest place between the sea and Tulkarem, uh, the airport of um, Fort Worth, Dallas, Fort Worth, cannot cannot get into this space. That's wild. To that degree, Israel was actually squished between Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea. And, and in the narrowest place, you couldn't stick the uh, Dallas uh, Fort Worth airport to that degree. And uh, this size of Israel, so small and so thin and so vulnerable, made our neighbors and our enemies actually uh, very greedy. Means they hoped that with one shot or one uh, hit, Israel will collapse altogether. And this is actually the atmosphere which we lived in uh, during the first 19 years of the state uh, after parts of the country was where uh, illegally occupied by Jordan, what the, the Judea and Samaria, what they call the West Bank, including ancient Jerusalem, our capital, uh, ancient capital since the days of David and Solomon. Uh, but the Jordanians couldn't care less. And by the way, the Jordanians in those years were uh, with the army, Jordanian army was under British commandment. Uh, to that degree, Britain was. Uh, not uh, friendly with us. Yet, uh, uh, Israel, uh, after, uh, and don't forget, those days we were after the Holocaust, which mm -hmm. finished in 1945. But for good five years, Jews were exterminated in thousands every day in Auschwitz, in Birkenau, in, in Chelmno, in Sobibor, in Treblinka, in many of those um, uh, death camps and many of the Israelis those days were actually Holocaust survivors who came in the age of 30 or 40. People with, you know, with physical abilities, they are not old as they are today. They were young. And they had to rebuild themselves psychologically, first of all, physically, and uh, from the communi from community point of view as well. 
and, and many, I, so most of the people in Israel came from the ashes of Europe. Uh, people who survived uh, six years of uh, world, war, war, which the Second World War, and this actually most of the most of the people here in Israel were. So for them to live in an existential uh, threat actually pushed them back to the death camps mm. uh, psychologically, and this is why uh, they felt. I'm talking about my 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 parents' age I means my parents' generation. Uh, they felt like fighting with their back to the sea, means that they cannot afford being uh, uh, defeated. This is why the Six Day War was actually a war for existence. Now, after the 1948 war, which definitely was a war of uh, you know to extermination. Because when five Arab armies invaded Israel one day after it declared its independence in mid-May of 1948, they didn't want to liberate the occupied territories. There was no occupied territories those days. Because what later became the occupied territories was under um, you know, Jordanian rule and, and Egyptian rule and whatever they took from our country. They wanted to abolish the whole uh, Israeli state, although it was recognized by the, by the world, and they wanted to slaughter us all in 1948. The same thing was in 1967. And this is what we felt. Um, and, and the war actually started, or the preparation to war, was actually a, a, a deterioration of the situation. It started when Gamal Abdel Nasser, the herald of the Arab nationalism, um, closed the uh, Tehran um, Straits to the south from El Elat. Means to choke Israel or the Israeli south. Uh, after all, we had an, a harbor, but what, what can you do in a harbor when the gate to the harbor, the Tehran Straits, are blocked by Egypt, which is a, a violation of the international law. You are not allowed to block an international passage of water. But Gamal Abdel Nasser could not care less about international law being backed by the Soviet Union those days. So he blocked uh, the, the, the Tehran Straits uh, in spite of the fact that it was uh, illegal. Then he streamed his army to Sinai, and uh, the Egyptian army was very big, especially compared to the Israeli army. And not, not only this, we saw the Jordanians also uh, uh, threatening Tel Aviv and threatening Jerusalem with their cannons, uh, which they, by, by the way, British cannons named Long Tom, very heavy cannons, which, uh, uh, which were shooting shells of 25 inches 25 inch width or diameter of, uh, of uh, shells. This thing weighs like a car. Mm. And these, these were the ammunition which the Jordanians were shooting on Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. Okay, this is what we were, we were experiencing those days. And the Syrians who threatened the Israeli North, 
and 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 this actually what we 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 experience on the, that that war, three big armies supported by the Iraqi army, mm-hmm. which sent a big unit to Syria because we don't share a border with Iraq, so they sent a, a, a you know, convoy with a whole battalion or whole a brigade to Syria. So all these armies together planned to in, to invade Israel and to put an end to this country altogether. And this actually was the eve of the uh, Six Day War. However, when you feel that you are pushed to the corner, you don't uh, uh, see anything in your eyes, you just fight. And mm-hmm. this is actually what happened there. Within six days, actually three days, uh, we crashed the, the Egyptian army in Sinai. Uh, and the other three days, we dealt with the Syrian army in the Golan. We occupied this, the Sinai desert. We occupied the Golan in order to defend our uh, 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 kibbutzim and you know all these settlements, all these farms, which were living under the range of the cannons from both Egypt and Syria. And we liberated the, the, the West Bank from the illegal Jordanian uh, occupation, which lasted for 19 years. And of course, we liberated Jerusalem, our forefathers' capital, which is ours today. And this is actually uh, the, that war. Uh, because of the pressure which we felt, we gave a giant fight, a fight which I think not, I, I don't know if there was a nation which fought such a fight for six days uh, uh, in order to liberate itself from a, a threat to, to slaughter everybody. Not in the Middle East, uh, uh, the, the, just a minute, let's wait for the ambulance. Oh, we can't hear it. You could keep talking. I don't hear myself. Oh. There's an ambulance outside. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll turn. And, and a nation which fights for its uh, existence actually gives the most powerful fight. And unfortunately, Almost 700 Israelis were killed in that war. Most of them are, uh, of course, uh, soldiers, reserve soldiers. Uh, and and, the, and the, as a result, we occupied large spaces, like three times as big as Israel. Uh, but we knew that um, these territories will not stay under our, our occupation forever. Uh, and with the years, we gave up on Sinai uh, to Egypt on the price for um, for peace. Means as long as uh, Egypt did not make peace with us, we didn't release these this, uh, territories. And the peace came in 1977, uh, Sadat uh, Initiative, and the peace was signed in March of 1979, and we gave Egypt back the desert of Sinai. With Syria, we are still waiting for peace, and um, Israelis, um, some of them, 
uh, assume that the Golan Heights might be given back to the Syrians when they are ready for peace with us. Yet, since Syria uh, today is in much bigger problems, um, I don't see any peace with Syria in the horizon, especially if Iran uh, takes Syria over. Uh, so, meanwhile, for 56 years already, we are in the Golan, we live in the Israeli cities and the and the place of farms which were built uh, on the Golan. I served uh, some of my uh, army service on the Golan, on the on the Hermon mountain, uh, overlooking Syria and listening to whatever was coming out from there. And uh, yes, and we love the Golan, and the Golan uh, is, is we we turned the Golan from being a launching pad for uh, missiles and. Uh, and cannons and mortars, now the Golan is flourishing, blooming, a, a, a piece of land which feeds Europe with the wheat and, mm. uh, and, and apples and everything. So uh, this Dr. is- Dr. Kadar, can I ask you, uh, you, you, it's the phenomenal what you're saying. I'm interested, going back to the beginning here of the Six Day War too, I'm interested to know, um, I've heard it said before that the Arab world was certainly unified in wanting to destroy Israel, which is something I think you had said. But I also heard that they were somewhat disorganized and incohesive. Um, I might have even heard uh, that the king of Morocco had helped Israel out in some way uh, as the Arab nations were meeting to talk about this war in Morocco. Uh, if, if it's true, uh, that they were disorganized. Why? What was what was disorganized about them? Why were they incohesive? Was there even a tension between Jordan and Egypt at this time as well? Well, for this, you have to understand the Arab world. Um, since the Arab League was established in 1945, the Arab world was sharply divided between two kinds of states. One kind is the state, the modern states, which were established on a European paradigm of uh, president, uh, parliament, government, judicial system, uh, elections once in a while, and uh, like, uh, like Syria as it was in that time, like Iraq, like, uh, um, I wouldn't say Libya, but uh, Yemen, which was Marxist for a while. And these countries uh, actually were conglomerates of uh, ethnic groups like Arabs and Kurds and Turkmens and Berbers, of clans, of religious, religious groups like Muslims, Christians, Alawis, Druze, Yazidis and others, and sectarian groups like Shia and Sunnah. These countries tried to ignore all these differences between groups of the, of the society and to impose on everybody the socialism. The Ba'ath Party, both in Iraq and in Syria, was socialist party. Also Egypt, under the Arab Socialism Party, was a socialist. In Yemen, they were Marxist to the degree. And their uh, uh, inspiration came from the Soviet Union. And they were their weapons were Soviet from the Soviet Union. Their economy was connected to the Soviet Union and Warsaw Pact, and they were definitely part of the of the Eastern Bloc, means uh, the Russia, when Soviet Union, and the countries which were united, 
in the Warsaw Pact. The other countries, Saudi Arabia, Morocco, Jordan, Libya until 1969, and later since the 70s, the Emirates, Qatar, Kuwait formerly also, were all, I would say, contra-revolutionary. They were led by kings, you know, this old-fashioned king, kingdom or, or regime, or emirs, which are more or less the same. They didn't have any parties, any elections. They were, you, you know, much more connected to the tradition of the, of the, of the Middle East, especially Islam. Don't forget that the, the, the socialism of the other countries were, was actually against Islam, at least implicitly, if not also explicitly. So these traditional countries, the kingdoms, uh, were very traditional, were very conservative, connected to Islam, just look at Saudi Arabia, and uh, they were threatened constantly by the revolutionary countries, Egypt, mainly Syria, Iraq, and their friends. So in order to protect themselves, they went to the West in order to have shelter under the auspice of the United States of America, NATO, Western Europe. So they were more or less uh, with the West. And in order to pay for the protection, they actually supplied the West with oil. Mm. Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, and, and, and other countries. And um, those, those years, don't forget, the, uh, the, the oil in the Northern Sea to the north from Britain was not yet found. And also the oil in Mexico Bay was not yet found. So the West means the United States, Europe, Western Europe, were addicted to the uh, Gulf oil mm -hmm. to that degree. So this was actually the division between, uh, between the modern countries, the, the revolutionary socialist countries in the Middle East, led by Egypt, against the group of the traditional and conservative countries led by Saudi Arabia against them. And the hatred which was within the Arab world between these two groups of countries was tremendous to a degree that some of them, like Jordan and, and Morocco, would cooperate with Israel against the Arab, the Arab radical countries like Egypt, Syria, and Iraq. In 1969, a disaster happened when the king of Libya, Idris Sanusi, was ousted by Gaddafi, and Gaddafi turned the direction of Libya from being conservative a kingdom to be modern uh, a socialist uh, country. What happened recently, since 2010, the Arab Spring actually, or what was called the Arab Spring, actually uh, brought the modern countries, Syria, Iraq, Libya, Egypt to a degree, Yemen of course, to dysfunctionality. They, they are dysfunctional because of the riots which accompany the Arab world. And today these countries are, do not function. So who can now breathe 
who can now feel that uh, they are free. All the traditional conservative countries like Saudi Arabia, Morocco, and now they can do whatever they like with Israel in the open air. They don't have to hide. So the Emirates have peace with us, the Abraham Accords. So is uh, Morocco and, um, and, and, and Bahrain, of course. And uh, no, nobody has any problem because the countries which were opposing this trend struggle to survive. Look at Libya, look at Iraq, look at uh, Syria. Okay, so this is actually a little introduction to the Middle East. But those days, in 1967, the Arab world was still led by the radical countries, means the socialist countries, especially Egypt under, under uh, uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, who, who, who was depicted in the Arab media as the prophet, the prophet of the Arab nationalism. Okay, not religious issues, no nationalism. Of course, uh, um, uh, uh, socialist, but this is the, actually what they meant. So this is the atmosphere. And don't forget that since those countries are conglomerates, means the socialist countries are conglomerates of different groups which never became a nation, they need an external enemy in order to galvanize everybody under the illegal ages of an illegal ruler like Assad or Saddam Hussein or uh, 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 Gamal Abdel Nasser and his successors, uh, Sadat and, uh, and Mubarak. So they needed an external enemy. And Israel was there to be the enemy. And once in a while, you have to make a war with Israel in order to show that the Zionists are willing to kill us all. So leave all the differences, leave all the the problems which you have with us and come under our ages and uh, let's be together. And this is why Syria never, never made peace with Israel because they needed Israel as an enemy in order to push everybody under the ages of the illegal Assad regime. And uh, this is what uh, explains the fact that Egypt, look, Egypt has, has no tribes over there because of the high dam which actually destroyed the, the Egyptian society. And today, the Egyptian society is a society of individuals, not clans, unlike Yemen, unlike other countries. So- Dr. Kadar, Dr. Kadar, Steve Herzig here. I just have to ask you, especially our listeners, uh, for uh, of which we're recording you in order for them to learn. You are 15 years old. Uh, this war had three fronts to it. Uh, the North, uh, eventually Jordan got in uh, on the East and then the South, Egypt. What was your personal feelings and what was the, at the beginning, what was the, uh, the atmosphere like in Israel? This was a surprise preemptive attack. I, your, your insight as an individual and remembering the government, the newspapers at that time. What was what were what was the tenor of the nation during this amazing six day? It, it's the most amazing time, I think, in the modern state of Israel's history. You know what? I actually saw it with my eyes, not far from my home, like half a mile. There was a big stadium, the Maccabia Stadium, uh, in northern Tel Aviv. Uh, well, yeah, we were watching uh, soccer games, 
uh, once a week, twice a week. Prior to the war, we have three weeks of waiting. Prior to the war, group of like 20 uh, bulldozers came to that stadium and dug a giant hole in the earth, giant. The whole stadium was actually dug as a hole in order to bury people in the war. To that degree, we were afraid that we're gonna be experiencing bombing from these countries uh, and, and uh, people will be killed in the streets and the, the army will, will, be, will have casualties. And the, 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 the plan was to bury these people as they are without you know extermination, without, without uh, uh, discrimination, without, without even identifying the people because we were afraid also from gas missiles which uh, Egypt was using, well, at, at least uh, uh, was apparently having those days because they were using gas against the, uh, against the uh, uh, royal regime in Yemen in 1962, five years before the war, the Egyptians were shooting the Yemenites in Yemen with gas uh, bombs. And Yemenites were, were, were dying like cockroaches in Yemen. And so we knew that the Egyptians have a, a, a chemical, chemical uh, uh, you know, warheads of whatever. And if they use them against Arabs in Yemen, will, will they refrain from using them against us? And we know that the ex-German engineers from Nazi Germany were developing missiles in Egypt, Al-Zafir, Al-Qahir, giant missiles with chemical warheads, which will be launched to Tel Aviv and to other places uh, in, in Israel. So this is why the government dug that stadium. And I saw in my eyes, because people were talking about this, I didn't believe and I went to, to see if this is right or wrong. It was right. And I saw this giant ditch in the, in, in, in the ground. The whole stadium was dug and the piles of, uh, of uh, sand around it in order to be pushed by bulldozers on the people who might, might die with, you know, from the gas. Uh, because, you know, you cannot even treat these, uh, these bodies if they are gassed to death because you will be gassed. So did you discuss this, this with your family, your parents, siblings, friends, uh, seeing all these things happen? I, what was the discussion like three weeks before? Everybody was talking about this, that uh, we are preparing for another Holocaust hmm. because the Egyptians will use, or maybe the Syrians as well, chemical weapons as they used five years earlier in Yemen. So this was the the, the three weeks of fear. Later, we found out why the government here waited for th three weeks. On those days, Israel was very, very short on ammunition. And um, Israel was also had very big, bad experience with the American administration uh, because the American presidency uh, maintained pressure on Israel in 1956 to withdraw from Sinai 
after we took part of Sinai in order to stop the terror attacks on the Israeli south from Sinai. This was the Sinai operation. Yet we had to withdraw from, withdraw from Sinai three, three months later in January of 1957 because of American pressure. So uh, um, Eshkol, Levi Eshkol, the prime minister of Israel in the Six Day War in 67, uh, he sent uh, the head of the Mossad, Meir Amit, to Washington DC to meet with the highest level of the American administration in order to make sure prior to the war that after the war, if we win, the United States will not maintain any pressure on us in order to, uh, 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 to keep the advantages from the war. And Meir Amit was there and he met with McNamara. He was then the, the Secretary of Defense. I, I don't remember his first name. John, maybe? I don't remember. Yeah. McNamara. I don't remember either. McNamara was, was his, 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 his uh, name. And when, when Amir Amit, the head of the Mossad, was sitting with McNamara, uh, willing to get the consent of America not to maintain pressure on us and maybe to supply us with ammunition if needed, uh, McNamara uh, uh, picked up the phone, called the president, I think it was Lyndon Johnson, and uh, he says, Meir Amit, the head of the Mossad, the Israel Mossad is sitting with me. And he put it on, uh, on uh, speaker. And, he, and, and we, he's asking if there is a war, he wants our uh, cooperation in A, B, and C. So Johnson said, you got, you got it. It's okay with me. So he closed the phone. And uh, Meir Amit called Israel, called the... Um, Leviash called the prime minister and told him, yes, we have green light from the Americans. So a day later, the, the war started, Israel started it, uh, after uh, Israel felt, uh, uh, and, and, and Israel actually uh, started it with what we call in Hebrew, Mivza Moked. Um, this was an operation uh, for three hours where the Israeli air force actually attacked the air forces of Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon and Iraq. Uh, the Egyptian Air Force was totally destroyed in this attack. The Syrian Air Force was totally destroyed. The Jordanian as well. The Iraqi was not destroyed, but was hit. And so was the Lebanese one. And now Israel could fight for six days without, uh, without having to deal with Air Force in the Arab side. So that's why uh, Israel won in six days a war. Actually, it was three vis-a-vis -vis Egypt and three vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Syria and in between uh, Jordan as well. So since they didn't have air forces, um, Israel could operate on the ground uh, much better. And this is why we succeeded to defeat them within six days. However, and here uh, comes uh, the big hammer, the ramifications of this war uh, I think are visible until this very day. Because in the Arab world, what got the biggest hit was the idea of Arab nationalism. Gamal Abdel Nasser, who 
as, was viewed, as I said, as the, as the prophet of Arab nationalism, he got hit so you know, tremendously that three years later, he died out of heart attack. He couldn't bear the consequences of the war anymore. And most of the Arabs actually abandoned the idea of nationalism. And uh, later, uh, like uh, 10, 12 years later, after the Iranian revolution, the religious trend in the Arab world became the substitute to the Arab nationalism. And we saw a religious a, a revival in the Islamic world, um, which was the, uh, the, the, the result of the defeat or the collapse of the national uh, idea. The religious one came instead. Uh, after all, the national one was meant to replace the religious one. So here we have a, a competition between ideas and when one is defeated, the other one, the other one uh, wins. So the Islamism, which you see today, is one of the results of the Six-Day War. Wow. However, and here comes the big hour, Israel succeeded to liberate Jerusalem. Jerusalem, as you know, is the third place in holiness for the Sunni Islam. Not the Shi'i, because the Shi'i Islam has another city, uh, the third place in holiness, which is Najaf in southern Iraq. But the Sunni world, which is the majority of the, uh, of the Islamic world, for them, Jerusalem is viewed as the third place in holiness. Here, we annex East Jerusalem with Al-Aqsa Mosque. By the way, Al-Aqsa originally was not in Jerusalem. Al-Aqsa in the days of the Prophet Muhammad was in a place named Ju'urana uh, near Mecca in the Arab Peninsula. It was brought to Jerusalem, means the idea that Al-Aqsa is in Jerusalem was invented by the Umayyads dynasty uh, as a kind of a competition with Mecca. Uh, because For our listeners too, Dr. Uh, Dr. Qadar, uh, Al-Aqsa is the mosque on the Temple Mount next to the Dome of the Rock, so they can kind of orient today, themselves. Yes, today. today. But this is a forgery of the Umayyads, because the Al-Aqsa, which is mentioned in the Quran, was not originally in Jerusalem, was actually in the Orana, uh, near Mecca. But 50 years after Muhammad died, the, the Umayyad dynasty uh, claimed that the Al-Aqsa, which is mentioned in the Quran, is actually in Jerusalem. They sanctified Jerusalem on the expense of Mecca in order to create a center for themselves. After all, they settled in this area and they abandoned the Hijaz, the, what today Saudi Arabia is. So uh, the, the Jerusalem was sanctified and Al-Aqsa uh, was declared to be in Jerusalem only because political issues of the of the Islamic uh, state or the Islamic Empire of the which started in 680 682 CE this whole forgery and Arab um, uh, historians talk about this explicitly and whoever studies Arab history or Islamic history knows this fact 
but uh, still today they stick to the to the lies because they have a problem with Judaism. And here comes the problem. When we liberated Jerusalem, they cannot fathom it. Why? According to Islam, Judaism is null and void, canceled, because they took the Christian theory of replacement one step forward. Because according to the Islam, not radical Islam, according to the regular Islam, Islam came to the world to replace both Judaism and Christianity. Both Christians and Jews should live under the auspice of Islam, under the yoke of Islam as dhimmis, people with, with, with almost no rights. They have to pay jizya, means the skull tax, when they are humiliated, as it's stated in the Quran. They have to live under the auspice of them. They have no right to states. They've, both Jews and Christians have no right to states, no right to army, police, uh, ministries. They don't have all these rights because Jews and Christians should be living under the auspice of Islam, according to Islam. And here, uh, with the help of the Christians, since the establishing of the state of Israel, and don't forget, Lord Balfour, with the Balfour Declaration, was an evangelical uh, Anglican, okay, Christian, devout Christian. So the, the whole state of Israel is a collaboration between the Christian world and the Jewish world against Islam. And now they are bringing uh, Jews to, Eretz, to the land of Israel. And in 1948, they established a state. Since when Jews have a right to a state? And they have an army, and they have a police, and they have a government, and they occupy Jerusalem, and they want to pray on the Temple Mount. And mm. all this means the state of Israel and its sovereignty and Jerusalem and praying on the Temple Mount, for them it means that Judaism goes through a process of resurrection. Means Jewish religion comes back to life with, a, with, with the help of the Christian uh, 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 religion. Means that this is a, a global conspiracy against Islam by Judaism or by Jews and Christians in order to bring Jews back to life, to bring Judaism back to life in the form of a state on the land of Israel, on the with Jerusalem as its capital, and Jews, hell's bells, and Jews are praying on the Temple Mount. And this, they cannot fathom. They cannot accept it. They cannot get it. They, could under, they cannot understand it because for them, all this process, actually brings a question mark on Islam. Since Judaism came back to life, thanks to Christianity, we know all these countries which recognized Israel and America and, and Europe and Britain, what will be the Islam which came to the world to replace these two religions? This is why the mere existence of the state of Israel, and especially the Israeli government of Jerusalem, and particularly, Jews praying on the Temple Mount, for them this is a theologic threat on Islam before it is anything connected to territory, to territorial issues or legal issues or political issues or I, I don't know what other issues or legal issues. 
This is a religious problem. And this is, in my humble view, the worst ramification and result of the Six-Day War when we liberated Jerusalem from the illegal Jordanian occupation. Dr. Kadar. And, 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 and this exists until this very day. The, uh, Friends of Israel takes tours to Israel. We have been since 1977. I'm, I'm around your age, and I started to come to Israel in the early 80s. The number one question when we take people to the Western Wall, when we talk to them about the political situation, they understand the miracle of the Six-Day War. Tell us uh, the difficulty, the conundrum that Israel has, because the question always is, why did they give back the Temple Mount? Why didn't they, they conquered it, they won, why didn't they give it back? Uh, we know how strategic it is, you just outlined. Give us a sample or a, 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 at least a cursory understanding for our, our watchers and listeners What's at stake as it relates to the Temple Mount for Islam? Well, Jerusalem is holy, as I mentioned, to the Sunni Islam, not to the Shi Islam. The Shia started to speak about Jerusalem only in 1979 after the Khomeini Revolution. Okay? Uh, and the Shia exists already 14 centuries. But uh, most of the time, the Shia never talked about Jerusalem. On the contrary, uh, those who sanctified Jerusalem were the enemies of the Shia, the Umayyads. So uh, this for, for Islam, uh, it's not that Jerusalem is holy for Islam. Jerusalem is holy or considered to be holy only uh, within Sunni circles, not within Shia. The, this is the first thing. But the Shia also shares this idea that Judaism is null and void. This is why Jews are not allowed, should not be allowed to go back to Jerusalem, to Eretz, to, to the land of Israel anyway, and of course to pray on the Temple Mount. And this, they, they share this idea as well, because the Shia also believes that Judaism is, not, is null and void. However, and here comes a very, very important thing. You talk about the Western world. The Western world was a substitute for many, many years, I'm talking about uh, more than a thousand years, for Jews to pray in the closest place to the Temple Mount. The, the Western Wall at the outside of the Western Wall is not the Temple Mount. It is Jerusalem, but it's not the Temple Mount. But Jews were not allowed to go to the Temple Mount, whether because of the Jewish halakha, the Jewish law, because we have to be uh, pure uh, in order to go to, into the Temple Mount, uh, and we don't have the ability to be pure uh, these days because of the procedure of uh, purification of the people needs a temple. Uh, so since we don't have the temple these days, we cannot be really pure uh, from uh, you know, the, the situation which we are. So this is why Jews refrained uh, for 2000 years to go onto the Temple Mount to the Haram Sharif, the Arab cause. Uh, so praying near the, the Western Wall, which um, is outside, was the closest place which you could go, go as a Jew to that place. Not to mention the fact that uh, 
and neither Christians until the, until the, as long as the Byzantines were there. And later the Muslims, they usually did not let Jews uh, perform any religious uh, uh, ceremonies in Jerusalem in, in, in general, and of course in the Temple Mount because both were afraid that Judaism will come back to life. Look, within when the times of the Byzantine uh, uh, empire, for hundreds of years, Jews were not allowed to go into Jerusalem. Only the Islamic occupation of, nine, of uh, 638, only then Jews were allowed to go into Jerusalem. But uh, until then, for hundreds of years, Jews were, were forbidden from, come to, from coming into Jerusalem, just like Mecca uh, of today. So uh, this is, uh, in very short, this, but the, the main thing is, that we have to remember that for Muslims, and as a result of the Six Day War, when we Jews liberated our ancient capital, the, the capital of David and Solomon and Solomon's uh, uh, descendants, um, the Muslims cannot fathom it and they cannot agree to it because for them, uh, uh, is Israel is a deed of Satan and Israel has absolutely no right to exist. Now the Palestinians actually uh, produce uh, this, uh, uh, this scarf when they go around in demonstrations, also in the United States, I saw it. Uh, on one, and, and this is the PLO, you can see this is the PLO flag. Mm -hmm. This is the PLO flag. On, on one side it says Al-Quds Lana in Arabic, means Jerusalem is ours. Since when Jerusalem is theirs, but they they write here Al Kudslana, Jerusalem is ours. Okay, the other side is this, and it says Palestine, the entire country, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Okay, this one, and they know the connection, because if they succeed to take Jerusalem, as they claim that Jerusalem should be the capital of the Palestinian state they will have the whole the whole country because there is no zionism without zion mm -hmm. and they understand it and they understand it very well and this is why this one scarf they want zion they want in order to abolish zionism and have palestine all of the country and they understand the connection between jerusalem and the land of israel and this is why they demand to have Jerusalem as their capital, although Jerusalem was never, not even one day in history, any capital of any Arab or Islamic state, let alone Palestinian state, which never existed. But this demand is supported, unfortunately, by Arabs, by Muslims, and lo and behold, even in, in the United States of America, there are people in the Congress included who believe that Israel should withdraw from the Jewish capital, Jerusalem, and to hand it to people who never had a state in this country and never had Jerusalem as its capital. Dr. Qadar, that, that, I want to wrap up our, our guest lecture series here on the Six-Day War, uh, you've been talking about the lingering effects 
of the Six-Day War and you were focusing on the Muslim uh, uh, side, on the region, what was going on in the region. I want to turn it over more now toward foreign policy, especially from the United States and from Western countries, because it's interesting that the six, the effects of the Six-Day War are still lingering on in foreign policy. And, you know, my mind goes to the fact that it was the Trump administration decades later that was the first president to actually walk up to the Western Wall and to and to visit the Western Wall. You have to think uh, 1967 is when Jerusalem was liberated. And it wasn't until uh, 2020 uh, or so when a president approaches the Western Wall because he's trying to show that Jerusalem is unified. It's not divided. It isn't East. It isn't West. It is the capital of the state of Israel. Um, but even embassies don't move to Jerusalem because of what the results of not only the independence war, but the six day war. Could you briefly talk about that in the remaining time that we have? Well, there is a law which was accepted by the Congress and the Senate ever since 1995, if I remember well, which declares that the United States of America considers United Jerusalem as the capital of the state of Israel. And therefore, the embassy should move from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And this is a law which was accepted by the Congress and the Senate. Yet, every year, ever since 1995, uh, every president since then, except for Trump, uh, was signing every year an executive order which postpones the implementation of this, of this law until Trump did not sign it. And upon this law, the United States considered Jerusalem to be the capital of the state of Israel and the embassy, or at least parts of the embassy, or officially the embassy moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, according to the American law, which existed already uh, 25 years uh, <laughs> before Trump uh, did it, okay? He should be blessed for implementing the American law. Okay. By the way, uh, I think all the candidates, both Republican and Democrats, who were appearing in front of APAC every single year since 1995, promised time and again that they will move the embassy to Jerusalem. Yet the only one who actually did it was Trump. All his predecessors promised, but never stood to the promise. Amazing. Mm -hmm. But this is uh, what happened. And, uh, and thank God uh, we are on, in our capital. We, and today, Jerusalem enjoys the freedom of religion for Muslims, for Christians, for, for, for Jews. Whoever wants to come, blessed be he. And, um, and, and and Jerusalem is as open as it was never under Islamic rule, uh, which was in Jerusalem uh, until uh, 67. Dr. And, Kadar, uh, thanks... I, 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 Dr. Kadar, I just one, I, I want to know, you know, Egypt took back Sinai. Um, I know Syria would love to take back Golan. Um, why didn't jo Jordan and Israel made a peace plan? Why didn't uh, the Hashemite kingdom take back, want, jo want, want Judea Samaria back or as 
we know it here in the West as the West Bank. Why didn't they take that back? Why didn't he want that land back for peace? Because, because the, according to the partition uh, plan of, of 1947, Jordan ends in the Jordan River, Jordan Valley. Jordan does not have the West Bank. West Bank was occupied, and this occupation, including Jerusalem, was not recognized even by the Arab world. Even by the Arab world, the Arab world did not recognize the legality of the Jordanian occupation of the West Bank, and of course, is Jerusalem. Why? Because Jordan was a kingdom, and the Arab world was led by the radical countries, the socialist countries were, who were against the kingdoms, as I mentioned before. And here you are, the, the, the domestic Arab feuds and struggles also had this. Only two countries in the world recognized the legality of the Jordanian occupation of the West Bank. One was Britain and the other was Pakistan. So the world in general did not recognize the legality of this occupation. This is why Israel could say to Jordan in 1994 when we signed the the peace agreement, this, this part of the land does not belong to you. You occupied it for 19 years illegally. Uh, it doesn't belong to you, especially Jerusalem. Now, the King Hussein, who signed the, the peace with us, he did not want to have the shame of having back the, the Judea and Samaria without Jerusalem, because he knew that Israel will never give up on its capital. So he, uh, he didn't want the whole thing partially. So he said, okay, take it and uh, deal. You can deal now with the Palestinians. He hates <laughs> the Palestinians. He hated them tremendously. And for him, uh, not gaining back the, or not getting back the West Bank, for him, it was some kind of relief because he has enough Palestinians in Jordan who are the majority of the population. They didn't, know, didn't need and didn't want more Palestinians uh, who live in the so-called West Bank. So he was more or less happy to get rid of them, so he didn't insist on getting them. By the way, uh, Sadat also, we occupied the Gaza Strip from Egypt in 1967. Yet when the peace was signed between or negotiated between Begin and Sadat, between uh, November 77, and March 79, Sadat refused to take Gaza back because he said it's not part of Egypt. You deal with the Palestinians. I don't want them. He hated them. So uh, between uh, Sadat, who didn't want the, the Palestinians of Gaza, and, uh, and Hussein, who didn't want the Palestinians of Judea and Samaria, we, we got stuck with them. But uh, little by little, we released them because Gaza, we, get, we got out of Gaza. Gaza is uh, functioning like a state. And um, the Judea and Samaria one day will implement the seven Emirates solution. Uh, Emirates in Hebron, the city of Hebron. Emirate in uh, Jericho, another one in Ramallah. Uh, uh, Nablus, Calcilia, and uh, Jenny. And uh, Calcilia as well, and Tulkar. And these are the seven emirates which I recommend to establish in the Arab cities of Judea and Samaria, while Israel should forever 
remain in the rural areas, and Israel should offer Israeli citizenship to the villagers, which are like 15% of the population, and that's all. So this is how to solve the Palestinian problem in a way which has some kind of prospects to succeed, like the Emirates in the Gulf, rather than building another Arab state like Syria or Iraq with many groups which never galvanized to be one group, which will collapse like Syria and Iraq. That's right. Well, listen, everybody, you've been listening to Dr. Mordecai Kadar. Wow. I mean, this was just amazing in every way. You you got a lecture. I think some people spend a lot of money to go to school to hear from Dr. Kadar when you got a lecture on the Six-Day War and not only the effects of the Six-Day War in the Muslim world, but also foreign policy. Uh, man, you heard it all. I, and I could sit here for another two hours. Dr. Kadar, you're such a blessing to us. Can you let our listeners know how they can maybe connect with you? Do you have a newsletter, the the programs that you're a part of? How can they connect with you and keep up with what you're doing, Dr. Kadar? Well, uh, since I'm the vice president of a company named New Israel, and I highly recommend that everyone will download this application. It's a free uh, application which gives news about Israel, Middle East, and uh, related uh, topics and related issues. Uh, it's Newsrael, N-E-W-S-R-A-E-L. You can download, download it from your app store, whether you use Android or iPhone, you have both, and use it for free uh, to learn about Israel. Since I'm the vice president of this company, my email address is Kedar, K-E-D-A-R, at newsrael.com. That's great. We will put all those things in the chat. Hey, I've got my app ready to go here, Dr. Qatar. Thank you right. very much. This is this. And we this will be this. sure to push this as well for all those who are interested in keeping up with news coming out of Israel, especially from a specialist, a scholar like Dr. Qatar. Thank you so much for being a part of this our FOI Equip program, Dr. Qatar. God bless and have a great night. Thank you, Listen, Dr. Kadar. It's a pleasure and honor to be here, and I thank you so much for giving me the pulpit. Thank you for listening to our FOI Equip podcast. Again, I want to remind you to go to foiequip.org and sign up to be on our mailing list. We'd love to see you at one of our free live online FOI Equip classes. Also, be sure to listen to our other podcasts, like the Jew and Gentile podcast, hosted by yours truly and Steve Herzig. Also, the Gesher podcast, hosted by Ty Perry. You can find out more ways to get involved with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry by visiting foiequip.org. FOI Equip is an outreach of the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. We are a worldwide evangelical ministry proclaiming biblical truth about Israel and the Messiah while bringing physical and spiritual comfort to the Jewish people. Hey, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you soon.